the Pictree Brag 19th Century South Shields Ghosts, the Pickled Parson and the number 13. Welcome to episode 13 of a Northern Counties Paranormal Podcast, hosted by Within the Boggart Wood. I'd like to start today's episode with a massive thanks to a new Patreon supporter, KL47. Thanks so much for your support, it's greatly appreciated. I'd also like to announce the Within the Boggart Wood first public event. On the 27th of August 2023, I'll be visiting the Land of Oak and Iron Heritage Centre, located near Winlayton Mill, Tyne and Weir. I'm coming armed with audio recording equipment and a notebook, and the aim is to record visitors' ghost stories, should they choose to share any. So if you have a story you'd like to share, or even if you just want to come and say hello, I'm there between 10am and 3.30pm. You can find more details on the events page of the Land and Oak and Iron website, or on the Within the Boggart Wood main website and social media. I'll also put the links in the episode description. So without further ado, we'll start today with this episode's From the Archives section. It's a story from the 7th of December 1885 in the Newcastle Evening Chronicle and is entitled The Pictree Brag. The existence of the Pictree Brag, says a writer of antiquated stories, was as firmly believed in by many of the people living in the neighbourhood of the Barley Moor about 60 years ago as any article of the Apostles' Creed. A well-known author, Sir Cuthbert Sharp, gives the following account of it taken verbatim from the deposition of an old woman of respectable appearance, of about 90 years of age, living near the spot at Pelton, probably. She said, I never saw the brag very distinctly, but I frequently heard it. It sometimes appeared like a calf, with a white handkerchief about its neck, and a bushy tail. It came also like a galloway, but more often like a coach horse, and went trotting along the lawn in a forefolks setting up a great nicker and a whinny every now and then, and it always stopped at the forlorn and ends, and nickered and whinnied. My brother saw it once, like four men holding up a white sheet. I was then sure that some near relation was going to die, which was true. My husband once saw it in the image of a naked man without a head. I knew a man of the name of Buick, that was so frightened that he hanged himself a fear on it. Whenever the midwife was sent for, it always came up with her, in the shape of a galloway. Dr. Harrison wouldn't believe in it. But he met it one night as he was going home, and it mace killed him. But he never would tell what happened, and didn't like to talk about it. And whenever the brag was mentioned, he sat trembling and shaken by the fireside. My husband had a white suit of clothes, and every time he ever put them on, he met with some misfortune. And once when he met the brag, and had his white suit on, being a bold man, and having been at a christening, and having had, we may safely interject, just had plenty, he was determined to get on the brag's back, and when he came to the four London ends, the brag had joggled him so sore that he could hardly keep his feet, and at last it threw him off into the middle of the pond and then ran away, setting up a great nicker and laugh, just for all the world like a Christian. But this I know to be true of my own knowledge, that when my father was dying, the brag was heard coming up the lawn like a coach and six, and it stood before the house, and the room shaked, and it gave a terrific yell when my father died, and then it all went clattering and galloping down the lawn, as if Yebbin and Yerth was coming together. Mr. Henderson, in his entertaining Folklore of the Northern Counties of England, says, The northern sprite is closely akin to Robin Goodfellow, 
not our friend of the Weekly Chronicle, but his goblin prototype, who Johnson introduced to us speaking thus. Sometimes I meet them like a man, sometimes an ox, sometimes a hound, and to a horse I turn me can, to trip and trot about them round, but if to ride my back they stride, more swift than wind away I go, o'er edge and lands, through woods and ponds, I win eat laughing, ho ho ho. Columns upon columns might be filled with stories of this kind, which have their home about this particular part of the county of Durham. Metamorphic goblins, like the Pictree Brag, have been seen to disport themselves and play fantastic tricks with belated travellers, especially before the introduction of blue ribbon armies. Since the date of the alleged appearance of the Pictree Brag, other phantoms have displayed themselves in the vicinity of Pelton Fell. Many persons living at the present time will tell you of the strange vision which appeared at the plantation situated between Chestler Street and Pelton, whilst old people to this day will recite the rhyme so well known in their childhood days. Up the bank and down the hill, willful murder, Stella Gill. Last episode I looked at reports of the ghosts at Marsden Grotto, so I thought I'd look at a few more ghost stories at South Shields in this episode. In 1870, families in Ingham Street reported being haunted by a poltergeist, with knocking noises starting around midnight and keeping the family awake in some alarm. The lower flat of the property housed an old lady and her maid, while the flat above contained a family and their maid. On the 5th of March, it was reported that for a full week, the lady in the lower flat had started to hear rappings, knockings, and other strange noises no sooner had she retired to bed. Efforts were made to find the source of the sounds, but to no avail, and an officer was sent out from the superintendent's office to investigate. However, the officer in question stayed in the house for only a very short amount of time, reported back to the superintendent with the statement that something very odd was occurring in the house, which shook around him as he left. At 1am the following morning, the superintendent visited the house, and discovered the two maidservants in collusion, knocking on the doors and wailing to create the unearthly sounds the old lady had witnessed. So ended the story of Ingham Street, along with the employment of two maids, but it was never ascertained what had made the house shake and rumble when the superintendent's officer had visited. In July 1885, stories of supernatural visitations were gathering around a house in Walpole Street, to the point that the local press took note that the house was attracting crowds of people who were hoping to see some manifestations of the ghostly presence. The activity had started apparently by the residents of the house reporting peculiar noises, knocks and bangs, then soon after this items of furniture were seen moving by themselves. The family, frightened already, were then sent into a state of terror as coals began being thrown at the windows of the house seemingly from nowhere. At this point the family called in the police, who promptly caught a local man throwing stones and coals over the wall at the house. While it was never proven that the reported noises and furniture moving were also the acts of this man, the activity stopped with his capture. The Shields Daily Gazette at the time concluded, The two things that are clearly proved by this rather amusing incident are the ease with which ghostly apparatus can be set in motion and the celerity by which people swallow anything that savours the world of the departed. Now from my own observation, this hasn't really changed in any way since 1885. A year later in 1886, William Brocky wrote that many folk in South Shields claimed that the old houses there were all haunted, with West Holborn Old Hall being no exception. In that year, the old hall had been let out in tenements, 
and was also partially in use as a pub. Brocky reported that a good friend of his lived in one of the apartments and had on a number of occasions seen and heard some very strange things. But one of the grand fireplaces she claimed were the bloodied marks of two fingers and a thumb, which resisted all forms of cleaning, with the bloodied marks reappearing even after fresh coats of paint had been added over them. The apparition of a lady was also seen in the building, and Brocky's friend assumed that the apparition and the bloody finger marks were linked. One night, so the story goes, Brocky's friend was sitting in bed reading when a tall lady dressed in a white silken nightdress with a scarlet waistband suddenly appeared at the door, then proceeded to glide across the room to the window, where she disappeared without a trace. A report suggests that the room took on a chilled, icy atmosphere, though this wasn't mentioned in Brocky's original story, and another suggested that the spot where she disappeared marked her grave, and that she was buried in the walls beneath the window. The hall was also said to be haunted by the ghost of a soldier, often seen at the head of the stairs looking over the landing. One of the apartments in the hall was deemed so haunted that no one would live in it, and as such it was kept boarded up. No one seemed to be interested in investigating the room, and it was locked and talked about in whispers when occasionally strange noises emanated from it, as if the ghostly residents were moving furniture or crashing around, and it was suggested that the room was the abode of a poltergeist. The building as a whole was described in 1934 as having long since disappeared, and finding information on the place has not been an easy task. It appears that Holborn Hall was originally built for the Burden family, wealthy salt merchants, and local legends suggest it was originally built in 1650 by Thomas Burden, and that Oliver Cromwell himself even slept a night in the house. However, by the mid-19th century, the hall as noted previously be converted into private apartments and a pub, with the pub simply named the Old Hall Public House in 1855. By 1895, the entire building complex had been demolished, and its space occupied by the eastern extent of the Tyne Flint Glassworks. The site of the hall is now part of the Brownfield site, on the west side of West Holborn, south of Middle Docks. Next, we leave the confines of South Shields and look down into County Durham and Sedgefield for a short but slightly amusing story. The 19th century ghost tale that has become known as the Pickled Parson dates to the death of the Reverend John Garnage, rector of Sedgefield, which occurred in the second week of December 1747. Upon the date of his death, the local tithe has not yet been paid to the rector for the year ahead, with payment not due to the following week. Known that if her husband was declared dead, the money would instead go to the Bishop of Durham, his wife made the decision to conceal his demise until the farmers paid up, and so embalmed his body in salt and kept it in a private room. On the 20th of December, the local farmers came and paid their rents. The money now safe in her hands, Garnage's widow declared her husband's passing. However, according to local tales, the spirit of the deceased who had been an honourable and honest man in life, didn't take overly kindly to his wife's treatment of his body and her deceit, and legend has it that his spirit returned and infested the rectory for nearly fifty years, with many a tale of ghastly cries and screams coming from the rectory during that time. However, sometime during 1792, a fire broke out at the rectory, and most of the building was destroyed, taking with it the ghost of the Reverend Garnage, though some say he still haunts a lost and hidden tunnel that leads between the rectory and St Edmund's Church. Today's look into superstitions looks at the number 13, as of course this is episode 13. In 1910, the word triskaidekaphobia was first recorded. 
And yes, this was the seventh take trying to say that word, meaning the fear or avoidance of the number 13. While to most folk, 13 is simply a number and nothing more, to others the number symbolises bad luck, with the Reader's Digest stating that a survey in the US showed that 9 out of 10 people quizzed on the subject actually felt uneasy about the number. There are a number of theories as to why 13 is so maligned. Some suggest it comes from the 13 diners at the Last Supper of Jesus in the Christian faith, with others citing a scene of carnage in Norse mythology after the 13th diner arrived at the Table of the Gods. Some suggest that the Sumerians believed that the number 12 to be the perfect number, and thus 13 was imperfect, with the Code of Hammurabi, a legal code written between 1792 and 1750 BC, even missing out the rule number 13, suggesting that the distrust of the number predated the Christian faith by a long time. Of course, this dislike of 13 has further manifested as a fear of Friday the 13th, which many suggest started on October Friday the 13th, 1307, when the French rounded up hundreds of Knights Templars and tortured and killed them as heretics. In modern times, according to some statisticians, the world's economy loses over $500 million every Friday the 13th, as so many folk are too superstitious to go to work. Of course, many worldwide disasters are recorded on Friday the 13th, with those that put credence in the events happening because of the date, not really taking into account all of those incidents that occur on every other day of the year. However, in my research looking into commonly attributed events, six keep popping up. These are A plane crashed in the Andes on October Friday the 13th, 1972, with 12 dying and the survivors resorted to cannibalism to survive until they were rescued. And on the same day, 174 died when a plane crashed landing near Moscow. On Friday, August the 13th, 2010, a boy in Suffolk was hit by lightning at 13 minutes past one in the afternoon and actually survived. On Friday, October the 13th, 2006, 24 inches of snow fell on Buffalo, New York, cutting off power to thousands of homes. Friday, October the 13th, 1989, the stock market fell by 6.91%, the second worst day in market history. Friday the 13th, 1951, the cities of Topeka, Lawrence and Manhattan found themselves flooded after days of record-setting rain fell over the northeastern Kansas bursting riverbanks. Now reading that has just made me check for Friday the 13th here in the UK in July gone, as it's been absolutely horrendous weather, but apparently not. And finally, Friday January 13th 2012, the cruise ship Concordia partially sank off the Italian coast, killing 32. So, thanks for listening to episode 13 of the podcast, which incidentally I hope doesn't end up as bad luck. For more information on Within the Boggart Wood, including social media and Patreon links, please see the links in the episode description or visit the website at theboggartwood.uk. So until next time, take care and stay safe.